Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Nowhere Podcast. Technology is constantly running in the background of our lives, yet for most of us, it's invisible. On Nowhere, we explore the intended and unintended influences that geospatial technology has on the real world. These are the stories of how geospatial tech unexpectedly affects our lives. I'm Jonathan Newfeld, host of Nowhere, and this week, my guest is John Norman. John is the Director of Strategic Research and Development for Terran Incorporated in Lakewood, Colorado. Hi, John. Thanks for being here. Thanks. It's great to be here. So today we're going to talk about wildfire reclamation and the role of geospatial technology in this important work. Set the scene for me, John. Where Where is Hermit's Peak and how did the Hermit's Peak fire start? Well, Hermit's Peak burn area started as two fires that coalesced into a single fire that became the Hermit's Peak burn area. It's located about 25 miles west of Santa Fe or in the Las Vegas, New Mexico region within that the Southern Rockies ecosystem. It was started by fuel reduction methods where they mechanically remove fuels from the forest and then build out these large debris piles that then they ignite during the winter months when it's safe because of temperature and precipitation. And those piles burnt for about a month and were thought to be actually extinguished. But there were some what's called 10,000-hour fuels in those features that cinders that then when we had these massive winds uh, spring of 2022, they actually scoured those areas out and then spread those embers, or those 10,000-hour fuels, into dry, tender vegetation that then began the fire in April of 2022. And so that Calf Canyon Hermit's Peak fire went on to be one of the largest and most destructive wildfires in the history of New Mexico, burning some, what, 340,000 acres? That's correct. It burned that many acres. 40% of those acres were National Forest Service land acres, and then 60% were private land acres. And that's where it really became a complicated story. So for anyone who hasn't been to New Mexico, what is the land like around Hermit's Peak? Um, the land is very mountainous. The Hermit's Peak itself is about 12,100 feet high. So it, it's actually quite an elevation gain from the kind of the foothills of Hermit's Peak, which are around 5,500 feet. So there's, there's quite a bit of elevation gain there. So really mountainous. The terrain is steep. The vegetation communities in that area are grass herbaceous, lowlands. And then as you move up those foothills, you get more into gamble oak and um, ponderosa pine savannas that then move into lodgepole pine communities, which are pretty homogenous communities of pine stands. And then towards the summits, you're getting into the spruce fir communities. So there's, there's quite a eco, series of ecotones in, within this burn area. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, quite a wide variety of vegetation. And unfortunately, you know, all of it was subject to that to that fast-moving fire in such a dry land, right? Yes, correct. And, and those, those systems really, especially the ponderosa pine, savanna, um, herbaceous grasslands, those, those systems historically burn frequently, but they're what's called a surface fire. So they don't really move into the canopies. And that's why that fuel management is so critical is because then you're reducing those what's called ladder fuels that then allow those surface fires then to move up into those canopies and then become a crown fire that then becomes very destructive and fast moving. You know, it's funny, we spend a lot of time talking about fighting wildfires and and wildfires on the land. We did an entire episode with 
a gentleman here in Canada who's leading the Wildfire Sat Initiative. But you mentioned, you know, these things are, are normal and natural in the environment. How, how often do wildfires happen and, and what's their role in the ecosystem? Well, so for in the sense of how often they happen within a ponderosa pine savanna. So, you, you know, a ponderosa pine savanna being large ponderosa pine trees that are spread out kind of evenly across the landscape. And then in between those, those trees, you have a grassland system. And that's how you get that surface fire that's more frequent. And then it can move up in the canopy. Within the Ponderosa Pine system, you're talking anywhere from 20 to 35 to 40 year return intervals on those fires. So that's, that's the Ponderosa Pine Savannah. So pretty frequently, low severity. When you move into the um, Lodgepole Pine system, that system is anywhere from 100 to 300 year return intervals. Those systems have evolved so that when you do have what's called a stand replacing fire, so it goes through and actually burns the entire stand, their cones are what's called serotonous. And so when they are exposed to that heat for that fire, they actually open up and then release the seeds within the cones. And then that stand just then regenerates as a homogenous unit. Within the spruce fir communities, they're, you know, they're the higher alpine areas that have a lot more moisture in them. And their, their estimated burn returns are around 800 years. So, so there, there's quite a variety of, of returns there. But yeah, anywhere from 800 years as a spruce fir, 300 years for a lodgepole, and 20 to 35 years for a, lodge, or a ponderosa pine savanna. Hmm, interesting. You know, here where I am, we have a, a national park right next door called Kootenai National Park. And in 2003, there was a massive wildfire through there. And even, you know, 20 years later now driving through, there's still large swaths of standing dead charred trees and, and we see the ground plants starting to recover. What's the recovery time from a fire like this, particularly, particularly in an area like Hermit's Peak? Well, um, so for the Ponderosa Pine Savannah, the recovery time is fairly rapid because those species have evolved to be burned more frequently. And so they do what's called root suckering. And so basically the above ground biomass is burnt but the below ground root matter is actually retained and then it just regenerates directly from the roots. So it doesn't really require a seed source. Within the lodgepole pine stands, you'll have a, a stand replacing fire come through. You'll then actually see an increase in plant diversity. So you'll have aspens come in and then other what they call early seral state plants like fireweed and stuff like that, that then regenerate quite quickly. And actually within the, that uh, lodgepole pine system, that burn actually produces a lot of forage for wildlife. And so then as those areas are regenerated in that early seral state within a lodgepole pine stand, for instance, eventually those lodgepole pines that are regenerating from seed then start to dominate that system and shade out the vegetation that's more shade intolerant, so they don't like to be shaded. And as those, those, pond, or those uh, lodgepole pines actually shade them, they actually then squelch them out. And then you actually then have what's called, you know, some people consider it a, a biological desert. So basically you have a corn stand or a, a stand of lodgepole pine, but you have nothing under it because nothing can grow under it because it's shading it out until it's burnt again. And within the spruce fir community, since its burn frequency is so low, there's really not much 
in the sense of how that system regenerates because it takes so long to regenerate because it is cold and wet. And uh, it, it's just not really well known in those systems because it's not frequent enough. So we've been talking about the natural part of the land and, and 60% of this fire, you know, was on National Forest Service land, but 40% was in, in areas that were private land and, and were inhabited by people. You know, it sounds like this, the fire destroyed, you know, almost a thousand structures, including homes and barns and outbuildings. Tell me about the people who live in this region and, and how they were affected by the fire. Yeah, this, this region's an interesting region, socioeconomically and culturally. Socioeconomically, you have individuals who have been there for very long periods of time before the United States, or like not individuals, sorry, um, families uh, that have been there a long time. The individuals themselves aren't hundreds of years old, but their family line goes back to that one. Their their lineage is, is, is pretty old as Spanish era and then Native American era. So that you have them and they are actually a lot of times subsisting off of the land via collecting firewood or cutting firewood, cutting timber for dimensionalized lumber. And so they're really integrated with that land and it's super important to them as a resource. And then you move into more of the recreational or the second home type scenarios where it's a beautiful place to be. Those ponderosa pine savannas are gorgeous because they are a par- they called park-like stands. And so there's a lot of second homes in that area that are associated with pretty affluent individuals across the United States, all the way to where you have actual multi-millionaire type individuals who have these massive lodges and have have consolidated a lot of those private lands into larger ranch systems. And they're pretty exclusive in that regard. So it, it spans a big sector within that socioeconomic component. Yeah, it's an interesting blend there of, of socioeconomics and, and income disparity. And it's interesting to think about people who are making their living and, and their life off of firewood cutting and timber stand harvesting, as well as you know, folks who are there as a, as a second home and a recreation place. I would imagine that the fire affected each of these groups differently. Yes. So, you know, the, the second home type individuals, the second, third home, they have sufficient insurance. And so, so their structures that were burnt or impacted are most likely covered or there's an insurance policy for them. The individuals who are subsisting off the land, who are making the means out of those fibers, they don't have those insurance policies. They, they, it's basically the community is their insurance policy. And that's that, the really um, cool factor about it is to see these communities come together at that level and really actually help each other out. They did that in two ways. The first way is during the fire, they were actually, as that fire was moving through the landscape, they were actually coming together and building their own fire lines um, using their own tractors and equipment that they used to harvest timber. So they were just helping each other out, neighbors out, you know, other people that needed those, those resources. So that's the way they came together. And then the post-fire situation where you then have these monsoonal flows that bring in these heavy precipitation events in short periods of time that create those flash flood situations or those debris flow conditions that then you have to then bring in tractors to then try to mitigate the sediment and the debris that is accumulated or build um, levees to then divert those, those sediment loads from hitting houses or other human life and safety situations. 
it's always amazing to me the way that people pull together in a disaster. And um, you never hope for disasters to happen, obviously. Yeah. One of the silver linings is the way in which people support each other and work together and, and the way they band together. And it sounds like that was very true in this Hermit's Peak fire. People bringing the resources they had, the equipment, their knowledge to help push back against the fire as it was coming through. Yeah, you know, I've, I when before I became a scientist at Terra and I was a USDA soil scientist and I had worked on a lot of fires in the West United States, this one's definitely one of the most unusual ones because of that the socioeconomics and the density of, of private lands within that burn area. But I've never seen a situation where the community really became solidified around helping each other out and making something that happened that wasn't a positive thing, making it as positive as possible. Usually those fires that are in these mountains that I've worked in are more of those second home, more affluent individuals where they have insurance policies and other means. And so they haven't had to come together to really become a community and help each other out. There's another great community story I want to get to later, but let's first talk a bit about reclamation and the reclamation process, because the process of reclaiming these areas after the fires is, is critical and, and challenging. And I'm curious, you know, for our listeners who might not know, what geospatial technologies were involved in getting to the point of reclamation and, and what sort of reclamation work had to get done here? Yeah, that's a great question. So the way we worked it, there is an immediate response. So there, you want to get a good idea of you know, number one, all of the values at risk. So the values at risk being human life and safety and critical infrastructure. So critical infrastructure being roads, irrigation ditches, water resource, you know, reservoirs, canals, those, those type of features. And then there's the human life and safety, which is the structures and other, other conditions like road crossings and stuff that then if there are flash flood events or debris flows, you know where they are and you can then say that, you know, under these rainstorm events, these are areas you should avoid or first responders can get out there and actually communicate to the individuals of the hazard level. Um, because a lot of, you know, a lot of the deaths that occur within a burn area are those post-fire debris flows, flash floods. Interesting. So it's not, it's not the fire itself that causes a lot of the loss of life. It's the, it's the aftermath. Yeah. And the aftermath lasts for many years post-fire. For instance, in Colorado, there was the High Park fire that I worked on in 2012 that luckily, you know, there wasn't much immediate impacts of debris flows and those factors. But two years ago, so 2020, there was a massive rainfall event in that burn area that was already 10 years old. And there was a massive debris flow that killed three people. And just when you think it's fully, you know, reclaimed and stuff, it's still a liability. Right. So we have this initial response to ensure human safety, human life, and, and protect as many of the, uh, the structures as possible. What happens after that? So the process that you go through, there's two processes. The first process is on federal lands, like Forest Service land, there's called a Burn Area Emergency Response Program, BEAR project. That is a program that immediately after the fire, within seven days of it being extinguished, there needs to be a report to then quantify all the values at risk and then actually highlight zones within the burn area that need to be reclaimed as soon as possible. That's the barrier. So it's in a rapid response. Within the private lands, that's called an emergency watershed protection program. 
that's headed up by the USDA NRCS, that program is much more extensive because there is so many more values at risk and human life and safety issues in within a forest service lands. And that whole process incorporates, you know, a much more methodical analysis of those burn areas and those impacts that those burn areas have. And then the reclamation process within that system is much more extensive in the sense of structures are built, levees are built, you know, just to to prevent those debris flows. And then there's a lot of mulching, seeding, and then other type of reclamation processes to stabilize those soils locally and then help regenerate vegetative growth to then reduce that flashiness of that hydrology so that you don't have those massive debris flows and, and flash flood events. So it sounds, it sounds like it's important to get in and, and do reclamation in the, in the private lands as well as the public lands you know, to help prevent those future debris flows, prevent that flash flooding or or landsliding, but also to protect the watershed. Is that correct? That's correct. So, you know, within the Southern Rockies ecosystem, which Hermann's Peak is in that system, 95% of our water resources going east or west of that divide rely on snowpack as their water resource and reservoirs to contain that that snowpack. And, you know, if you start eroding it and filling those reservoirs with sediment, that's very costly. Also, the char that is transported downslope into these reservoirs make the water so that you cannot treat it within a water treatment system because it interacts with the chloride and creates a carcinogenic compound. So no way. (laughs) (laughs) So so if that ash comes into contact with the, the chloride that we use to clean our water, it becomes carcinogenic. Yeah, it, it becomes hazardous for sure. And so that's why like along the, the Southern Rockies Ridge there, the, the, the divide, multiple municipalities have multiple watersheds that they can pull from as a kind of a security blanket to prevent this emergency where if an entire watershed is burnt, you can't use the water coming downstream right. from it. And so within the Hermit's Peak burn area, the city of Las Vegas, 100% of their watershed had been burnt. And so they are in a massive predicament of how do they actually treat this water. There is a company that I was talking with when I was in Las Vegas last September going through the burn area. And they're they're coming up with a water treatment, a mobilized water treatment that can actually then remove the char from the water to then allow it to be treated. But it's very limited in its capacity. I mean, it's going to prove really useful for Las Vegas, New Mexico especially. But, you know, this, this is something that we have to think about when we all rely on this water resource as a function of a watershed and snowpack. For sure. For sure. Okay, so it's important now to get in and do reclamation on the, all these private land holdings for the, for the public good to protect the watershed and, and to prevent against these, you know, flash flooding, landslide type of events. But I imagine... The federal government or the reclaiming organizations can't just kind of walk in and, and, and take over and start doing that work. You know, they obviously need to get permission from the landowners and, and need to get their consent. So one of the challenges here was figuring out who owned which piece of land, right? Let, tell me about that and, and how the old Spanish-inspired system made it a bit more challenging. Yeah. So, you know, most of the fires that I've worked on that, that go into private land, they're usually larger land holdings. So, you know, 10, 20 to several thousand acre type landowners. And there's probably in those burn areas, maybe it's a couple hundred, if that, landowners that you need to contact 
to then get permission to do that reclamation on those lands within the Hermit's Peak burn area it was definitely a, a big surprise in, in my mind because those lands were parceled out pre-United States methodology of parceling out stuff, you know, through the USGS type so- surveys. Yeah, they're not big like mile by mile rectangles, right? Yeah. Or, or squares. They're, it's a different shape. Yeah, you know, the Spanish split up the land into these land grants that they call them. So they're these pretty narrow units, maybe maybe a quarter mile wide, if that. But they span from the valley bottoms all the way to the summits of the, the mountains. And so that allows, it was an equitable system so that you could, you know, everyone had the same piece of land. You didn't have people that could only have the good productive bottomlands for agriculture. And then some people would have the uplands for forest resources, but you really can't harvest any sort of agricultural products from that. So so they, they, they gave this equitable land. So they really split fragmented, you know, this, this landscape up with these, these belt transects, if you, if I'll call them that. And then what happens is you move through time because these land grants are over 300 years old. Every generation gets a slice of that, that original transect or that original width of land that then even makes smaller little parcels. Sure. So generation by generation, these belt transects, these, these little strips are getting chunked up even smaller as the generations further down the line get a piece. Mm-hmm. Correct. And really, you know, when I just quantified it here for the burn area, there's somewhere around 2,500 landowners that oh. the NRCS had to gain permission from. And a lot of those acres within a treatment zone that we delineated, which I haven't gotten into yet, you could have a treatment zone that's, you know, 200 acres, but there's 30 landowners that you have to contact. And a lot of those landowners are very hard to contact because they don't sure. have the technologies and, and maybe not check their mail, or they're very suspicious of a government entity coming in and wanting to do something on their land. So it's very challenging in that regard. Luckily, the NRCS field office out of Las Vegas, they have... Sorry, NRCS is... Oh, sorry. It's the Natural Resource Conservation Service. It started out as the Soil Conservation Service post-Dust Bowl. But so they have very good local connections and relationships so they can actually get out on the land and directly contact these individuals via face-to-face meeting and not through mail or email or any of those other technologies. And I would imagine in a community that maybe is, is suspicious or skeptical of the federal government, having those personal relationships could make a big difference in terms of getting this reclamation actually done, right? Correct, correct. Yes. So so we, like I said, there's thirty-five or sorry, 2,700 individuals that we had to c- figure out who they are first because that parcel information in this region was very sparse and not really well populated. So we had to, you know, go through quite a process just to figure out who owns what piece of land within a treatment zone and then actually get out on the ground and start contacting them and, and showing them the models that we built out and showing the hazards that we could try to mitigate to protect their property and protect the resources that they care about. It's the old adage there, right? That the map is not the territory. And and the parcel information they had on record didn't necessarily reflect the reality, right? I understand there was a, a matriarch of the group as well within the community who helped push forward some of those reclamation efforts. Can you tell me about her and what and her role in this? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, when we were out, you know, because because the NRCS conservationists know these individuals within the community really well because they 
either lived there, grown up there, or they've spent a lot of time there. So we actually went out and targeted a couple individuals who have large tracts of land who are kind of that matriarchal component. And one of them that we contacted was, her name was Rosemary and her husband was Raymond. And they they have a, a fairly large tract of land that they harvest timber and actually cut dimensionalized lumber. So that that's what their trade is. Prior to that, they were retired firefighters. Oh, yes, firefighters. Wow. Yeah, so they, yeah. So they, they had a, a massive amount of experience in mitigating that fire as it was coming through. And they actually, part of that whole matriarchal component for them was people believe them because they have an expertise and they're part of the community. And so they really, when that fire was actually burning through, they used a lot of their own personal equipment to build out those fire lines and help protect other individuals' lands within that fragmented parcel landscape. And so we went to her and we talked with her. I was a private contractor, Taryn. I wasn't a, you know, a federal entity or anything like that. So they um, were very, very accepting of, of the data that I was presenting them and showing them the hazards and, and the properties that were most at risk. And they really jumped on the bandwagon of getting the word out into the community through local means and really enhanced the whole process of getting permissions within the region and the tr- building the trust within those, you know, those communities to allow us to then start to then get this reclamation on the ground. Because, you know, the reclamation process, at least for, you know, this aerial seeding and mulching, it's called, requires wood, burnt trees. So we have to find where the, the optimal places where you have standing dead, kind of like what you were saying from that, the, the fire that's near you. What you do is you come in and you actually cut those trees and then you mulch them on site. And then that mulch is then loaded into these large nets that helicopters fly over the treatment areas. And then they, they call it, they paint the landscape with the mulch. And so there's a lot of a lot of activities going on, a lot of road building going on that makes people nervous. And so, you know, if, if these if Rosemary and Raymond come in there and say, hey, we're having them do this on our land and we trust them and we believe in this system, then that allows other individuals to actually jump on that bandwagon and right and really want that done for their property. And then there's assurances also that these lands where they cut some of the wood on private land, they can actually utilize that wood for firewood if it's not used. And then the the reclamation companies have assured them that they will enhance the roads that they have, their local roads that might need bigger culverts and, and other sources to allow those flashier systems to move that water through without washing out their roads and other infrastructure that's on their land. Right. Yeah, yeah. And it, the, the, the power of the community there is phenomenal. In getting people on board and moving towards a positive solution and, and reinforcing the potential outcomes there of the reclamation. Tell me a little bit about the geospatial technology behind all of this. What kind of tools and technologies did you bring to bear to work within these communities and these organizations to, to pursue this massive reclamation project? Yeah, so this fire is a really a, a case study of geospatial technology. Because historically, it's been a lot of boots on the ground, driving around, flying around in helicopters, drawing on paper maps, you know, making guesses. What is this hill slope really connected to hydrologically? And so what we did is we did a two-prong or a two-phase project where we, we got a good estimate of those hazards, so those values at risk. So we're able to quantify 
all of those values at risk geospatially and then use publicly available terrain and satellite imagery to get at burn severities and then those hydrologic effects downslope so that we could actually then say these areas are hazardous, big, broad scale, you know, not fine resolution yet, just just at, at a 10 meter resolution. These are your hot spots that then you can then prioritize your boots on the ground type of efforts and streamline that process. Because over that 380,000 acres, there's very limited road access. And so, so there's a lot of unknowns that people can't get to. And then there's a lot of private lands that just you just can't drive onto people's private lands. And so this, this allows you to do a big, broad-scale assessment of those hazards and understand where we need to focus more higher-resolution-type analytics on. So, so phase one was publicly available data, 10-meter resolution, debris flow, flash flood, sediment models that we could target, we could hi- highlight those values at risk, that then we could back-calculate back up into the watershed those zones, those hill slopes that are the most connected to the most values at risk. So then we can start prioritizing these these larger units of analysis and not have to draw on maps and do stuff like that. So while we were executing phase one, we were also flying LIDAR and four-band imagery over the burn area. So then we could actually do our more fine-grained, more spatially relevant analyses. So we, we, we were able to collect the LIDAR and the imagery in a week. Wow, that's fast. Yeah, it was fast. It was very yeah, that's fast. Incredible. Yeah, <laughs> and collecting, especially lidar, in an area that's that diverse in terrain with those those type of vertical exaggerations is very tricky to do it right. Luckily, our director of operations has a lot of experience in doing that, so he was actually able to build out these flight lines really rapidly and, and in a way that allows us to account for that terrain. So we flew the lidar in a week and the imagery, we were able to process the LIDAR for the entire burn area. We actually flew bigger than the 380,000 acres we threw. We flew around 600,000 acres just so we could capture more of those hydrologic effects just you know outside the burn area. We didn't want to limit it just to the burn area. We wanted it to be more watershed-centric. So we collected 600,000 acres, processed in three days, and then we ran the same analytics that we ran at the 10-meter resolution just at that finer 40 centimeter resolution. So then we could actually target individual houses better within a greater community because we're able to model those flow paths in a much more accurate way. This taking into account the roads and other localized type anomalies in the terrain that are not picked up in those publicly available terrain models. Right. Okay. So you so you started with a high level overview using publicly available data. Use that that quick analysis then to direct a more detailed scan. And then based on the LIDAR and the imagery you collected, you're able to do a very fine level of, of uh, modeling and forecasting to be able to really finely direct the reclamation efforts. That's correct. And, you know, part of, part of the analytic offering we also did at that high resolution is we're able to, using our LIDAR data sets plus the imagery to, to locate all of the structures because there is a lot of unknowns of how many structures are really out there. Because it is such a, you know, it's a, it's a community that's tight community inward, but not outward. And so there's not a lot known about all those structures. So we're able to find all the structures and then we're able to then take that information and then actually quantify the, the total number of burnt structures, including outbuildings and, and other features that aren't just a house, right? So that was part of what we offered for that so that we could, you know, better quantify that. The second thing that we did is we were able to, 
using the LIDAR especially, find all of the individual trees within the burn area. And so we're able to quantify the bowl of the tree, the stem of the tree, and then the canopy of the tree. Then we integrated with our uh, four-band imagery to then come up with the burn severity of each tree. Oh, wow. On a a tree-by-tree basis, not just like an acre basis. Yeah, tree-by-tree basis. Wow. That analytic then allowed us to then delineate wood mulching areas. So areas where you have the the most volume of wood that's burnt, and you can then start say this land, this piece of land here has this many trees, this much volume of potential mulch. So then you can calculate how much mulch you need to then cover a treatment zone. Gotcha. Okay. So then the, the, the areas with the more severe burning and the, the high density of timber would be the primary candidates then for, for this mulching activity. That's correct. Yeah. I mean, if, if you have, you know, we were able to quantify, like if you have a certain burn severity of a tree that's, um, I mean, there is a sweet spot um, so that, you know, you want a tree that's been burnt in, in the sense of most of those finer fuels are burnt, but you still want a solid, a solid stem and not one that's fairly charred. So that's what we're able to quantify is like, where's the Goldilocks zone uh, for mulching? Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Not too, not too burned and not too cold. Yeah, I got you. And so, and then the other thing is when we go out to the, in the field to talk with these landowners to get permission to come in and, and cut their trees, we could show them directly, you know, the, you know, down to the tree level, like the trees that we're going to be harvesting and the zones that we're going to be harvesting and the potential impact in the sense of a view shed or, or even, you know, when I was saying with the, lodgepole pine stands, you, um, once you cut those trees and remove it, you have then this, this influx of just herbaceous grass type species. And then you get that gamble outcome in that's very wildlife friendly and produces a, a patchy landscape where, where animals can move between forested areas, open areas, they can forage, you know, in the nighttime like refugia. And so you actually you actually can then take this burn area and then work it, you know, using the data and the ecological sciences to come up with, if we, if we manage these areas and cut these stands here, we actually are doing a benefit to the greater ecosystem in the sense of nutrient cycling and and wildlife habitat. Yeah. And perhaps it helps maybe speed up that, that long cycle of reclamation a little bit as the forest, you know, turns over from one stand to another. Mm -hmm. Correct. Excellent. And I, I understand there was a billionaire in the area or multimillionaire who had a lodge. How was it affected? Harold is his name. Entity. I don't know if it's him <laughs> directly. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But, but he, uh, he was able to, like I was saying, you have all of this kind of fragmented private lands as a function of this land grant, uh, Spanish land grant parcels. He's actually consolidated them into a larger ranch unit that incorporates an entire watershed um, it's a very big unit and so that's, that, a big, that's a big area of land yeah it's very, i can't remember the exact acres probably around two thousand acres i would imagine but his his that entire watershed was it was completely consumed by the burn area because it it was a, a, a firestorm came through if you could imagine a tornado of fire came through and so it's very scorched and very very hazardous because its downstream effects are huge his lodge that he had built there, which was this massive, just gorgeous lodge, it was actually built in a location within that greater watershed that was more of a, on a, a foot slope of a hill slope or a mountain slope that is connected to a bigger, broader meadow. 
And they had actually done a lot of defensible space work around the lodge. So the lodge actually was completely defended. And it wasn't defended by firefighter means. It was defended by just nature and the way it was built in that defensible space. Yeah, so it was in the right location. You know, it, it, it was in the right physical spot. And then it sounds like they'd done a lot of work in removing potential fuel sources so that the, the fire couldn't jump from the, the forest onto the building. Correct. And, it, and it, it was stood. All they had was smoke damage, right? So when we were building out the debris flow models and looking at buildings that are going to be impacted by these debris flows, it looked like a prime, like this thing's going down. Um, but, <laughs> sure. But, now, it's not a hill, right? And, and the entire hill is burned. Yeah, so, of course, you would think that debris is going to just scream right through it and take it down the hill. What yes. happened? Well, that's what we were when we were looking at the models and we were like, wow, the model is showing debris not ever really truly impacting this building, even though it's got the lower part of a hill slope and there's a lot of hill slope above it. And so we really were questioning like, okay, is this is this really working well? So we actually flew out there in a helicopter um, because there a debris flow had already occurred, a massive debris flow had already occurred. And you couldn't get into the property because it was so bouldery, rocky, the road. You could, you just, a vehicle could not do it. So we flew a helicopter into there and lo and behold, what the model was saying was, was basically this, this lodge was built on this convex hill slope at the foot of a hill of a mountain slope near that meadow. And, and the debris actually split around it because of the local terrain and it was stood a massive debris flow where you have boulders and material that are a lot of the boulders that we saw were, you know, six, seven feet in diameter, like wow. very large, very large debris flow and hazardous. The only thing that was really impacted on his property by the debris flows was he had a, like a trout pond, a pretty sizable trout pond connected to a, a local drainage way. And it was completely consumed by the, by the debris flow, but that's something that's, you know, that's not your, your massive lodge or anything like that. Yeah, it's so, pretty minor in the, in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. And, it, and it's amazing, you know, both that the lodge was able to withstand that debris flow and that it showed up in your model too, you know, using that high accuracy LIDAR data and, and the four band imagery, you were able to forecast that the debris was going to go around that facility. That's phenomenal. Yeah, that was because this, this type of work really hasn't really ever been done post-fire, especially this quickly post-fire. So, so the exciting thing about this project that we were able to be part of was to actually capture imagery and the terrain, the LIDAR, before lots of stuff started moving. So we, we have a snapshot in time, um, you know, if you think of it in a science way. We have a snapshot in time of what's the terrain, what's the vegetation before debris flows and other, other hydrologic hazards happen. So then what we get to do is now we have this baseline data set that then as we move through time and, and hopefully this project moves forward this way, but then we can actually start to then look at time one, time two, time three type terrain characteristics and correlate that back to the models to say, our model says this much debris flow or this much debris is coming down slope at this given location. It's really hard to validate that in the field because it would take a lot of measurements and there's some uncertainties there. But since we have that baseline, we can say how much it's going to, you know, debris is going to be coming down slope. But then when we capture time two, we just can do that difference between those two time periods. And we can actually right. quantify, we can actually start to quantify volumes of debris 
in a spatially explicit way. So then we can better tune these models and understand their interactions and better understand the uncertainties or the certainties that they are producing. Because, you know, when we were originally were building these models out, that a lot of people were saying, how, tell me exactly how much debris is going to be hitting this roadway or this drainage way. Tell me exactly how much the stock market's going to go up next week, <laughs> yes. right? Because <laughs> there's no yeah. way of validating it. That's right, but it sounds now like you, with, with this initial snapshot, now as you go back and you, you fly LIDAR or imagery again over the same areas on a, on a recurring basis, you'd be able to begin to quantify it and say, look, you know, our model showed X, but our data capture from 12 months post-fire shows Y, and then you could put that back into the model to fine-tune it and, and make it better for the future. Is that fair to say? Yes, you're correct. And, and you can actually quantify a degree of certainty of your model because it's really, because these models are mechanistic type models. And so it's just, you know, these, these, these interactions between slope and hydrology and rainfall and soil properties and burn severities that have been measured at very localized scales because you can't measure at a broad scale because it's, it's, you just can't quantify that. You can't take right. trackers. Yeah. And, and so, you know, they, they've been tuned to these finer scale hill slopes. And so there's, there's a lot of uncertainties or unknowns when you scale it up to a very large area, how well does it perform? And so that's, that's in, in my mind, the really exciting component of this is, is we actually have a data set now that we can actually start to quantify that for post-fire threats. And we're working with, I think it's, there's a university in Las Vegas, New Mexico, Western, I can't remember off the top of my head, but we're working with their geospatial community and their ecosystem science department to then you know, provide students with access to these data sets so then they can start to build out their projects or other researchers can start to build out other projects where, you know, they might get more creative with some of the modeling efforts or just, or just quantifying what is, what is the effects of these model of these post-burn effects and then what soil properties, what vegetation characteristics are really driving those debris flows and flash flood hazards. Right. So with everything you've learned out of this project, with this post-fire analysis, what do you see as the future in these sorts of post-fire modeling and reclamation projects? What would you like to see coming in the next three to five years? I think would be really cool. And, and the, it's kind of getting a lot of, well, I shouldn't say kind of, it is getting a lot of traction because these fires are occurring more often and they're occurring more where more human life and safety, more water resource region or resources are being impacted and people really want to know, you know, they want to get boots on the ground quickly to prevent these post-fire hazards from happening. So in the future, what I think is going to happen is, is there's going to be a task force coalition that's going to be developed that's federal, private, state type entities that then when there are these fires in the Western United States, especially, you have a task force that comes in with technology, with knowledge to then better, you know, and more systematically quantify where we need to stabilize these hill slopes and quantify the values at risk that are most at risk to then prevent, you know, either resource damage, water infrastructure damage, or human life and safety issues. Because, you know, like I was saying, those post-fire effects last for a long time and they're deadly. And so that that's in the immediate future. That looks like it's probably going to be happening next year or something like that. Another thing I think that's going to come out of this work, I hope, is to gain an understanding of 
this modeling process and understanding like how do we connect the landscape to values at risk critical infrastructure and then doing a modeling effort where we don't we can be more proactive and so then we can actually go into a landscape that has not burnt that has values at risk and then start to then use those same methods that we use for this to say what forest resources should we manage those those fuels so we can then optimize our our fuel management to prevent severely burned situations from happening, which then trigger those those post-fire effects. So then we get can actually optimize, you know, our dollars. So, you know, cut these hill slopes, you know, thin these hill slopes, it'll reduce your burn severity by X amount, which will then reduce your total sediment hazard or your debris flow hazard by this much. And they're connected to a water resource that's a critical municipality type resource. So so it's kind of twofold. There's the, the reactive component, which we are doing now, but then I think hopefully in the future, we'll be moving more towards a proactive fuel management system that is more targeted and more economically viable. Fantastic. Well, thank you for being here, John. I really appreciate you taking the time and uh, learning all about this wildfire reclamation work that you're doing. Thank you. It was my pleasure. <laughs> Thanks so much. This is the Nowhere Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Neufeld. You can find Nowhere at NowherePodcast.com, on Twitter at Nowhere underscore pod, and you can find me at John underscore Neufeld. See you later.